Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. That's me, alongside soccer journalist and Syria Ah specialist and OTB producer Sam Griswold. Uh, no Grail Hallett today, our resident media executive. Uh, he is on assignment. Actually, he's, hey, Sam, I'm lying to our listeners. He's not on assignment. I always wanted to say that, uh, that, that he's on assignment. That's what they always say in news shows. But uh, Grail is actually moved, so he's in the process of moving. And today, uh, two things. Uh, yesterday, he went to the DMV, which uh, took him like, forever. You want to murder somebody. You won't wind up walking out of the DMV talking to yourself when you leave there. You just keep, keep mentioning the word title over and over. Title, title. So anyway, today... To make matters worse, he's waiting for the cable company to install his Wi-Fi. They said they'll be there somewhere between 9 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. Thanks for rounding it off for me. Uh, basically narrowing it down to the um, entire workday so you can't leave your house. It's like a hostage situation. So I mean, uh, those are basically two, two reasons, excuse me, never to move, right? You know, having to yeah, go to don't the DMV. Move. Yeah, that's basically what it comes down to. DMV and Wi-Fi, so you can't drive, you can't get your uh, your emails. What 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 is uh, what are you gonna do? So I would love to say to them, you know, feel like rounding off when you're gonna pay them. It's like oh, you can expect payment somewhere between Thanksgiving and Easter, um, but I mean, look, the DMV uh, that is one of the worst days you could possibly have, and now he's now he's got the other one. So so he is not around. Uh, so it's just Sam and I. You're stuck with just the two of us today. Um, but before we get going, Sam, I want to know what you're over today on Over the Ball. Yeah, so I'm over the UEFA Nations League and not for the first time. Uh, however, this is for a new reason. Um, I finally actually got into it a little bit this past week because Italy were pushing to advance to the Final Four, which they did after beating Poland and Bosnia. Um, both okay. games I thought were really fun to watch. Um, I'm going to discuss them a little bit later. Uh, however, I then found out that this Final Four won't take place till next October, which I'm sure some people knew wow. already, but I didn't, um, which to me just feels kind of pointless. I mean, you know, the Euro is supposed to take place in between that, which sort of, to me, kills any momentum and interest that, you know, one should have in the Nations League. I was hoping it would be, you know, a few weeks before the Euro is sort of a fun build-up kind of thing to get Pretty into. Season. Yeah. yeah, but uh, I don't know. It all feels very anticlimactic. So that, that's it's, what it's I'm interesting, you know, week. next October. So it's almost like, you know, half the players will be different. I mean, who's going to who's going to remember what happened before? It's just, it's uh, yeah, too long of a pause. And uh, what did it like? Did you watch Lewandowski? I know you're a big fan of him. Um, what did you think about him playing without his usual cohorts? Yeah, so this was one thing that really stood out to me in this game, which Italy won 2-0. Um, Italy are playing very, very well right now. They're a really fun, young team, uh, very talented, um, and more than anything, just you know, progressive and trying to possess the ball and play on the front foot, which Italy has not always done, despite the quality of its players. But yeah, Lewandowski really stood out to me for how isolated he was in this game. Um, and it was really a reminder of how important service is to a striker, which shouldn't be a surprise, but especially one like him who's such a pure forward. Um, and he just fits in that Bayern system so well and has such good players around him. Uh, you know, he he only needs three or four, you know, touches in the box to make a difference. But I feel like watching him in this game it reminded me why he hasn't won a Ballon d'Or yet and why, you know, he may never because he'll just never have the same impact playing with his national team, which is too bad. Let's uh, let's go back to Italy for a second. Though. Why do you think there's been a change? Is it a cultural change or a, a generational change? What do you think is the difference there? It's a little bit of both. I mean, I think after not qualifying for the last World Cup, they really, you know, 
took a good hard look in the mirror and realized things need to change. Um, you know, the way they went out against Sweden in which they didn't score a goal, uh, was, you know, a big, big part of that. And, um, you know, for a long time, like I said, Italy has had teams with just, you know, fantastically skilled players, but that, that hasn't always meant they've been this great team to watch. You know, they've often resorted to just packing it in and playing defensive. Um, uh, Mancini coming on as coach really helped and him giving faith to the, you know, young cohort that's really stepped forward has helped. And, you know, for a long time, the the majority of the Italy team seemed to just come from Juventus, which rubbed a lot of people the wrong way around Italy. Because as I've said, you know, people are so loyal to their clubs, it comes well before the national team. But right. this new team has a, a lot, a much broader representation, um, which I think is really cool too. So there, there's a lot of momentum and a lot of excitement behind this team. But we won't get to see them play this thing till October. Well, you know, the, the interesting part with taking, you know, almost a lot of national teams have taken players from the same team together. They've taken a midfield, midfield wholesale or the, or the back, mm-hmm. you know, the back three or four, you know, together. Um, thinking is that they know each other, that they can come into camp and they kind of can already read each other. I don't think that's always necessarily uh, the best formula because, you know, uh, a camp is supposed to be, you know, the, the sort of the veterans, the grizzled veterans but they're not usually the ones who carry the weight in the world cup. It's, it's basically these youngsters because it's a, you know, they're coming off full seasons and they're playing in a, you know, in a tough summer, going to be winter this next one. But uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's almost a different game. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, I, it has worked for team. I mean, we saw it with Spain who were taking, you know, half the Barcelona and Madrid teams basically for their national team, you know, Bayern has supplied always, you know, a big part of the German national team, but uh, in this case, I, I believe it's a strength of this current uh, Italy incarnation that it is a little more diverse. You know, uh, I mean, <laughs> bring this to me, but, you know, playing in college with a team that was sort of challenged, we're playing teams that were fully funded and we only had a, a scholarship or two. And um, I tell you, I took great satisfaction in playing against guys who were all Americans from Duke and Indiana and UCLA to kind of see what they were like. You know, when I got to the pro league to sort of go up against them, and I'm, I sort of a lot of times I was just like, hey, man, you don't have uh, 10 other great players around you. Um, and we have the same players around us and, and I can see what you're made of, you know. And I think that edge, you know, you look at the like you're talking about with Spain. I mean, some of these players down on the other teams must be, you know, uh, you know, a little, uh, have a chip on their shoulder. And so they come to the national team and they play well. It's almost like a TNT when the United States lost to them. I said, when I heard that they were going to play some of their younger players, I was like, oh, that's, that's, they're in trouble. The U.S. is in trouble because they're already looking past TNT and these young guys are going to try to make their mark because they're hungry. They're not mm-hmm. phoning it in, that they're going full board. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And again, to go back to Italy, I think, you know, Italy stereotypically, but it's certainly warranted. I mean, you're young in Italy, not just in soccer, but in life until you're 30, you know, because you're still right. living at home with your parents. Um, so, the, And your grandmother who's wearing all black. Exactly. Um, so, you know, the fact that these younger guys, 23, 24, like that's still a young player in, in Italian in the Italian mindset. So it's good to see them finally getting a shot. And we've seen, you know, national teams trending younger, seemingly everywhere. So I feel like they're finally getting on board with that. All right. Well, I was going to say what I was over is just watching the news because nothing changes every day. It's just getting scary being an American. It really is uh, right now, this country that's, that's uh, always held up as uh, the, the amazing experiment that's uh, going on. And uh, it's just scary. So I'm not even going to talk about it. What I'm going to talk about is on the heels of your Italian uh, 
talk there. They, they missed the World Cup and they kind of reexamined themselves. Perhaps they're going to just reconfigure how they approach the game. Sounds like they are. Uh, the United States, same thing. So uh, a pair of games. We reviewed the Welsh game, uh, the U.S.-Wales uh, game. Uh, last week, this week, they played Panama. Uh, you did not watch the game. Uh, you forgot. You slept through it or something. You didn't hear the bell. Uh, but you watched the highlights and you read about it. What, are, what were your thoughts quickly? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not re- <laughs> quickly because you didn't watch the it's game. It's not really fair for me to comment on this overly. But, I mean, the highlights I saw, it looked like the Panama keeper was having an off day, to put it to put it nicely, almost as if right. he stuck a field player in net. Um, and I watched a little video of Casey Keller commenting on the game and just saying, you know, how, how many gifts the U.S. were given. So I don't think necessarily 6-2 really reflected perhaps how the game went. But, uh, I mean, I'm happy they won. I'm happy they're scoring. And, you know, I, it's not – the highest quality opposition, but like you said, actually, it's, uh, you know, someone we're going to have to qualify against. So, right. You know, look, they're in our region. I think we always, you know, you can't win for losing here. So it's sort of, uh, we lose to one of these teams. It's devastating. We, we beat one of these teams and it's like, who cares? It's only Panama, but Panama is, you know, we have to qualify through them. Um, they've played well. They've beaten us in the past. Uh, we haven't had an easy time of it. Uh, I was rather encouraged. I thought, um, yeah, the keeper made some mistakes. Casey Keller felt that, um, you know, if there was a different keeper, if keepers had switched ends and Zach Steffen was in the net for the United States, it would have been 2 nil. Uh, Panama, uh, you know, at the end of the first half. So, um, yeah, so I, don't, I think the keeper had a bit of a nightmare. But they were talking about, you know, we, we were putting out a bunch of young players there. So I think, you know, overall, I was, you know, pretty impressed with the swagger, the cockiness, the shape, the pressing, uh, attacking out of the back, playing it out of the back. Um, you know, and I really impressed with uh, Weston McKinney um, this this past uh, week. This show, he was all over the place, and uh, I, you know, I think that's partly you know playing um, for Juventus. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, like I've said before, he plays kind of all over the place for Juve. He's sort of this utility guy, and he's done a really good job anywhere he's filled in. So, um, I to me, he's the future captain of the U.S. national team. Um, and yeah, I, he's been a standout for sure. I also, speaking of Zach Steffen, it's a little, it's been fun watching him because I, I haven't really gotten a chance to see him too much in recent years. Right. And, you know, part of me hopes like, I just don't see it really happening for him at Man City. I just hope he finds sort of a, a team where he can not be sort of in the shadows in Frankfurt, but somewhere where he can really make a mark at, uh, you know, a top level, which he should be able to do. Yeah, he seemed pretty composed. He had a giveaway, but, um, you know, overall, he wasn't really tested that way. So it was a tough one to, you know, for, for a keeper. But I think even just playing uh, training with Man City every, every week is, uh, is something. Yeah. But, yeah, he can't just languish on the bench there for a while. He's, uh, he's too good a player, so, and he needs to get to that next level. But to go back to Weston McKinney, you know, you're talking about how he was a utility player you know, for Juventus, but he seemed to be a utility player for the United States as he was absolutely all over the pitch. He seemed mm-hmm. to be able to, to just wander everywhere. Uh, and I liked a lot of what he created. You know, he's got a physical presence. He distributes mm-hmm. pretty well. He, he can hold the ball well. I think the only time he sort of doesn't look like he belongs there is sort of uh, when he's out on the wing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's more of a central player, obviously, which is what he is. But, you know, so look, um, people were talking about how the starting 11 of uh, Panama, only one player um, can be considered top tier. Michael Marillo, who plays for Anderlecht, um, the Belgian league, and then the starting striker currently plays for um, the, the Tampa Bay Rowdies. So, I mean, 
you know, I could say if we had our full national team and, and the older guys, but we put out a lot of young players there. And so, and this is a nine month gap. Um, this is what we're looking at. You know, we've talked about it on the show before, but what kind of team are we going to see that comes out of this, this, uh, this nine month, you know, COVID hiatus or quarantine that we've all been on. So they have two games. They play against Wales. Uh, I thought they played well. I thought they outplayed the Welsh, but I, you know, um, they didn't score, which is a little nerve wracking. Um, and then a six, two win over Panama. So they, they kind of seemed like they were having fun out there. So, um, you know, so this is what's happened since the last time. This is all that's happened in the last nine months. You know, Christian Pulisic has sort of become a, a real uh, threat and a real player, a real gamer for Chelsea, um, where he's going to play probably, um, you know, a bit on the outside for the United States, I would imagine. Um, so that's good news. Weston McKinney, we, we've just talked about with Juventus. He's playing with, you know, uh, Ronaldo every week. That's got to help him out. And uh, Sergino Dest moves to, to Messi's Barcelona. Um, Claudio Arena's son, Giovanni Arena. I mean, um, he's established himself as a first-team player at Borussia Dortmund. Chris Richards has worked his way into the senior squad at Bayern Munich. Um, so a lot there, uh, don't you think, there? Because you're usually pretty negative. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, there, there's a, a ton of talent and a ton of possibility and potential in this team. I think I, right. you know, the, the one thing again, to be like a somewhat of a dissenter, it, you know, it's, it's one thing to control these games possession wise, play out of the back, do all these things that we've been talking about and hoping to see from Burhalter's teams against this kind of competition, you know, right. then to take it, then you have to take it one step up for the qualifying and then you have to take it another step, hopefully eventually, you know, at the world cup itself. And sure. you know, I think a team like the U S which is not a top, top tier team, it has to be able has to be enough of a chameleon to adapt itself to play against better teams. And I don't know yet how that's going to look, basically, because all we've seen from Burhalter is this, you know, possession style, this short passing, playing out of the back, trying to control the game. And I saw some flair in the last two games. I really did, um, especially from Sergino Dest. I think with him, he's a lock for position, you know, in the back. Um, mm -hmm. But he looked more comfortable at right back, where he started against Wales than at left back. Um, let back his position in the win, you know. So um, he looked more comfortable right back than than uh, where he started against Wales. So um, I guess what you have to factor in is maybe you know Reggie Cannon. I think um, is probably going to play opposite him at this juncture. He played pretty well. Uh, Anthony Robinson. I, I kind of you know he got off to a shaky start, uh, and then and then played a little better as he as he you know, got going. I think the other thing is to who's going to play alongside Jonathan Brooks um, or John Brooks, Jonathan Brooks, I think is a, is a musician, a country singer, singer, songwriter, woman. Um, thought Tim Ream played pretty well. Uh, so I, I think they've met Miazga. He um, uh, is coming along, has not developed as much as, as uh, I had wanted and as many uh, you know, fans in the U S have hoped, but he's uh you know, he's playing for Belgium's Anderlecht under Vincent Company, who's one of the best defenders of his generation. So, um, you know, he's learning from the best there. And also, you know, Chris Richards, I think that's kind of coming out of, come out of nowhere. And speaking of coming out of nowhere, this Janus Musa, uh, I hope he commits to the U.S. because he had the uh, ability to turn, you know, get the turn and move upfield with pressure on his back. Uh, a lot of prey. He was double teamed at the time. He still was able to turn. It was, uh, it was quite surprising. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed watching him in both games. So hopefully he commits to the United States. 
um, you know, because he can also pick England, I guess. He could also pick Ghana or Italy. <laughs> so yeah, he's got, I mean, a, he's got a few options. But yeah, he was great against Wales. I mean, it, it you know it didn't always work out, but I mean to play with that kind of confidence is really cool. And uh, you know, again, like I said last week, it's fun to see these players who play in Italy, who play in Spain, bringing you know a little bit more of that technical, tactical um, flavor to the team. So yeah, right. Nice and they had Musa. Musa was paired up with Weston McKinney, a twin, uh, twin central pairings, in front of Tyler Adams. Tyler Adams, I thought, played okay, um, not bad. But I, I like, you know, we know him as a player, and he's been coming back from injury. But that's uh, not a bad little trio there in the center of the park. Yeah, um, it's good. I mean, I think you know, a big, another big question mark is who's going to play up top. I mean, I like Sargent a lot. We haven't seen him lately. Uh, Legette didn't really do it against Wales. Um, but a couple of these young kids, um, I feel like have the potential. We just might have to wait a few years for them to really, you know, make their impact. Yeah. I mean, look, the last three years, whatever options been, uh, Josie Altador, you know, uh, Josie's artist, Josh Sargent. Um, but they've got this, uh, you know, Io Akinola and Daryl Dyke have been revelations in MLS. Um, they played well there. They're going to get a look. I'm sure Jeremy Abbasvise um, continues to defy critics. Another strong season for Portland he had. Um, you mentioned Sargent. I guess he couldn't uh, go. He probably would have started, I think. Uh, at least one of the games. Yeah. At least one of the games if he had been released. It, but he wasn't because of uh, COVID restrictions. Um, and how do you say that? Nicholas Giancinetti? Giancini? Gioacchini. Gioacchini. Now, that doesn't make sense. I thought the, the Italians go Giacchini. <laughs> not the hard C. That's amazing to me. See? Well, the CH, the CH is a hard C. So, but this one G I O A C C H I N I. Yeah, but if it's followed by an H, it's a it's the hard C. Giochini. And yeah. you're you're going deep on your Italian one on one with me. Maybe that's <laughs> uh, level four. I think. Um, I was telling the story about you know when I was in college, the uh, I had pneumonia when I was. It was supposed to take four levels of of college Spanish. And I struggled with level one, even though I had taken it in high school. And so I skipped level two and three and just had to take four, which was conversational. And I thought, all right, I'll just take conversational Spanish. Wait, you struggled with one, so you just skipped to four? I just skipped to four because four was conversational. So, you know, I was always the first guy to be able to speak some Spanish on the field. Like I could speak it, but you know, a little bit. And, um, you know, the broken English, you know, the Spanglish. But I figured, all right, I can't be conjugating verbs and everything at level, you know, one, you know, one thirty. So I figured, all right, that was my game plan. Well, I have pneumonia when the final is there because I sat through my uh, one forty class um, and just didn't know what was going on at all. Pick up a couple Spanish words here and there, and then I had pneumonia and I was actually walking to the infirmary. I was going to blow off my class, and you had a you had a pass to get out of college. You know, this is my senior year. And um, first semester senior year, and I remember I'm walking across campus, going to the infirmary, and the teacher goes, Kevin, where are you going? He's from Columbia, and he used to watch all the soccer games. <laughs> I go, oh, man, I'm going to the infirmary. I'm sick. You know, he goes, you've got to come to the – this is the final uh, – you know, the, the answers, this is going to be it. I'm like, okay, well, he gave most of the answers because it was 140. Nobody was, like, worried about, you know, classes and conjugating and papers. It was just conversational. Yeah. And I passed. I took a pass fail. I got through by the skin of my teeth. My God. So anyway, I don't even know where I was going with that one. But um, uh, a couple of things you're talking about the striker. So we have the Nicholas Giancheni. Uh, um, Giacchini. Yeah. Giacchini. All right. And it uh, sounds like zucchini. Okay. I got it. Yeah. Now. There you go. Um, 
you know, uh, and then Sebastian Soto, who's playing the Netherlands. So mm -hmm. um, I've often seen guys jump into the national team and then they uh, come out come out hard, come out strong, and then sort of just fade away. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, which of these guys has some, has some staying power. I don't know if Sargent has been dynamic enough to be able to be the, you know, the lead striker for a national team. So I think yeah. you know, it's, it's Gazi man to beat. Yeah, I he mean, hasn't. I mean, I mean, um, um, Josie, Alton. Josie, yeah. I feel like Sargent hasn't quite developed as some of us hoped. I mean, like a few years ago watching right. him, he really seemed like he could be that hold-up guy, very composed uh, with his back to goal, um, just really good at keeping possession. But, I, yeah, I don't know. He hasn't taken the next, the next step, I guess, to become a, a real goal scorer. Right. You know, and you also see, like, you know, watching Lewandowski, you know, we were talking about him earlier. It's, um, you know, to watch him hold the ball up. You know, and, and even and he's a pure goal scorer too, but he's able to hold the ball too. He plays that role so well, frees everyone up. So I, I hope you would think that an American would be able to fill that role pretty easily. You know, big physicality with some skill development, and uh, but it just hasn't uh, hasn't happened as of yet. So, all right. So um, so let's talk about some other stuff. So I think overall, I was pretty pleased with what was going on. I I think you know Grail always talks about the the system that Berhalter was playing. I think you play, it's like jazz. You got to kind of learn the notes and then you got to, you know, improv with, within it. And so I think um, I watched those guys kind of fool around. They all knew their assignments, it seemed. Mm -hmm. And they were, they were doing it and they were roaming a little bit. So it wasn't so, you know, up and down 95. It was just sort of uh, some skill, some, some flair, some cockiness, which we want to see from a team. They played out of the back. They played with their, you know, back to the nets. They were, they were I, I think overall, I, I'd give them a seven for this outing. Um, okay. So, all right. So you and I, we, we talked last week about uh, you and I and Grail doing the, uh, watching this Ted Lasso show. <laughs> So I watched the first episode. I want to hear what you thought first before we get going here. Yeah, so I watched the first episode too. And I'd read an article earlier this week that I sent out to you guys in The Guardian, which was you know, basically saying that the show was, I mean, not irresponsible. It's a comedy, but spreading the stereotype of you know, the ignorant American manager, um, right. which seems to be maybe the last stereotype we have to get past now that we've got you know, players playing in some of the best teams in the world. But um I don't know. I didn't feel too much of that, uh, you know, in the first episode. I, I feel like, if anything, it was more just about American sort of wholesomeness and, you know, give 100% attitude regardless of sport and whatever. Um, it, it was more about that than about a lack of soccer knowledge. Right. Um, I didn't think it was very funny. <laughs> I mean, I thought the laughs were way too obvious. You know, the coffee versus tea, ties versus overtime, playoffs, no playoffs. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe it's because we follow soccer very closely, but these seem like very outdated sort of things to be poking fun at. But um, I, I think I think it's a classic fish out of water story. I enjoyed it. I thought it was funny. I really did. And I the premise I bought because at first I got a little annoyed because I'm like, is this what's going to happen? Is this going to be the, you know, let's make fun of Americans? Because I, I still I do not know where the English attitude comes from. 
Uh, they're tough on each other with the newspapers, but they act like they're world beaters on the world stage, and they are not. They invented the game. They are not. Most of the best Premier League players are not English. Most of the coaches are not English at the top levels. So I don't, I don't know where the national attitude comes from. And then a coach like Bob Bradley, who's coached all over, done well everywhere, goes over there. He coaches for 11 games, and they're making fun of him, calling him Brad Bobley and, you know, all that, that stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I definitely – uh, get my um, my uh, my fists up with the, with the English and how they they sort of act about the game and and, yeah. and their place in it. I think they're way off. Having said that, this show I wanted to see what the premise was going to be, and they're not making fun of uh, a soccer person like a Bob Bradley going over there to coach in, in England. So you're taking on the team, you're also taking on a national culture and attitude. Um, but they're springing over an American football coach, and I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. And then when the woman said no, the owner, the team owner said, no, 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 I, I want this team to fail. I was like, oh, okay. So, so now I get it. It's fish out of water. I, you know, I, I get it. So it's, they're not making fun of a soccer person. They're making fun of a football person, which soccer players do all the time. You know, we, we always have that sort of ch- cigar chomping football guy, get you in the fire up, you know, everybody knows your muscles work better when they're relaxed and you're smooth and you're moving well and you're not getting, you know, just, just trying to hit them hard, you know. So I mean, it's one of the reasons I got away from playing football was because I didn't want some guy yelling at me plays. I wanted to just have the kind of the free flow play that was pick up basketball, you know, and, and that's what soccer was for me. So um, I was looking back on a lot of the stories I did for ESPN leading up to the 1994 World Cup and they were all those things. Um, you know, making fun of the fact that, you know, they get an attitude when we say field. It's on the soccer field. This is not soccer and it's not a field. It's a pitch. It's like, well, it's a pitch where you are. It's a field here. Um, you know, your boots or your cleats. We call them cleats or boots. It's like, you know, they, and they say like, like they own it. Like they own it. Like you can't say cleats. It's like, yes, we can. In America, we say cleats. You know, your soccer shoes, your boot, you know. So that, that, that's always annoyed me. Yeah, there was a funny story Rory Smith wrote about uh, the sort of proliferation of the Premier League and how it's gone global. And um, you know, this is in the New York Times. He had a line, something like, you know, if we're being honest, you know, this is the English game. And, you know, many are unhappy that, you know, it's shared with anybody you know, outside right. of England. And, you know, for it to go back, I mean, not to get too historical, I think England is very good at codifying stuff, right? I mean, did they really invent soccer? I mean, people were kicking a ball all over the world, they were right? They kicking a skull around is what they were yeah. kicking. Yeah, but I mean, they From invented some town. rules and wrote them down. So good luck to them. But yeah, I mean, to me, these are things that mean like nothing. I mean, this terminology, right? I mean, and to me, in many ways, that's a more interesting story is the Bob Bradley that goes over there and gets harassed because he doesn't, you know, know what the term for something is. I mean, who cares? I mean, to me, this is a way for the English not to focus on what's actually going on on the field, you know, the tactical aspects, things that are happening. I mean, it's, I don't know. Well, look, look, the, you know, like I said, on the, the uh, they think they're going to win the World Cup every, every time it comes around. And it's just like, uh, it ain't happening. And I think they're their own worst enemies sometimes with their criticism of everything. But, but, you know, look, players, American players. I remember John Harkes went over there, you know, and I remember it would have been a great movie. John Harkes was, you know, it played over in England, knew a lot of the guys and they respected him. Um, and then he's playing for the national team here at Giants, not a giant stadium in the, um, in New England, New England stadium, the revolution stadium. Um, 
which is the Patriot Stadium. And he's playing. He goes, the English guys walked up to him at the, in the semicircle there, the half circle, the halfway mark. And they're like, oh, Hawks, it's going to be a long afternoon for you guys, for you mates. It's going to be tough. And they beat him. United States beat him, which is, you know, hey, that's a one-off. Any team can beat any team at any time in this game. But it just shows you the, the attitude. Like, and like I said, I will still, I will reiterate, have not won a World Cup since they hosted one back in the 60s. Most of the players, the best players in the Premier League are not English. Most of the coaches at the top teams are not English as well. So I think, you know, um, they don't own it. And in fact, you know, just like the empire, it uh, goes away. So um, so I so I did like this show because that's, you know, the stories I did was were about, you know, that, that whole pub mentality and, and um, you know, you, you – I don't know how many English coaches you played for, but they, I've had some great ones and I've had some really bad ones. Yeah. Uh, yeah totally. Like anything else, you know, I've also had some soccer coaches who were not too unlike Ted Lasso, you know, who didn't know that much about the game, but just thought if you yelled, give 110%, uh, you know, that was enough. So. Well, this is where soccer has actually changed the complexion of the game of sports in this country. Because before, look, you know, for years growing up, I played American football in the fall. I played basketball in the winter. I played baseball in the spring and summer, then tennis and outdoor basketball and all kinds of other things in the summer. Um, and soccer changed that because it's such an unforgiving mistress that, you, you know, you need to build the skill to be able to play. I mean, Instead of playing, you know, you can't play more than two months, three months of football because your body won't take it. Uh, it's, it's the nature of the game uh, there. And uh, with soccer, you have to play 11 months a year. You can maybe take a month, uh, month off. Maybe if you're doing some light jogging, you know, and stretching on, the, on your yeah. days off. And then it's preseason all over again. So it's changed that. And the one thing I don't, didn't like about what happened with soccer was that there was the specialties. Specialization of sports happened after soccer because, mm-hmm. you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, everybody used to take soccer on, you know, football, fairies or whatever they used to call us when we were playing because you wouldn't, didn't want to play football. Um, you know, all, all, all that stuff happened. And then all of a sudden, every one of the teams started playing year-round ball. Mm-hmm. Baseball, basketball, you know, um, football, lacrosse. Lacrosse started taking on baseball, like, you know, which was a better sport. Like, they're all great sports. Just let kids play. So, anyway. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on that before we move on? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the tough thing with soccer, looking back at my own college experience, is you're right. I mean, it's a game that you you have to be playing all the time, and it's hard to do when your season is only, you know, two months long. You know, a lot of it falls. Even when you're playing D1, you're practicing in the spring, but, you know, you got the summer. Like, you have to take a lot of that on yourself. You know, you got to find a club to play for in the summer. You got to, you know, stay active all the time. And it's, uh, I don't know, it would just be great if we – we had a schedule that sort of lined up with the, the way the game's going uh, at the college well, The American level. football teams, they, all they had to do is, you know, they have to lift weights and stay fit. And yeah. Don't be involved in any barroom fights or any sexual assaults over the course of the off season, which is always hard for football teams to do, apparently, on college campuses generally most of the time. But this is one of the things we've talked about before on the show, which is the NCAA has not changed that at all. They haven't given soccer any of its due in the sense that, you know, football's played in the fall, and then they just lift weights and check out the playbook for the rest of the year. Like I said, um, with soccer, yeah, you got to be playing longer. And the game is going to miss the college level if, if, um, if it keeps going like this and if the NCAA continues to just sort of marginalize soccer and say, you know, you're a non-intense sport. And um, even though it's growing and, and sports, you know, professionally, it, I think it still is the future. Um, it's kind of a little bit of the present now, too. So, um, so 
Anyway, those are my thoughts. So we're talking about national teams. I thought it was an interesting article you sent me earlier in the week about the best players on a national team ever. Now, talk a little bit about it. Was it the people within this, the country who voted for it or what? Well, so this was on ESPN.com, you know, the soccer page. I guess ESPN FC, it's called. Um, they did the, yeah, yeah. the there's, GOAT. There's no Americans on there. <laughs> yeah. exactly. uh, you know, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. They did 13 countries. Um, I can't remember all that they did. You know, obviously yeah. some of the big ones. But um, the U.S. was included in there. And, uh, I mean, I don't think it, the votes were limited to people in, you know, the country that they were country talking itself. about. Anyone could vote on anything. But, um. Yeah, I mean, my main takeaway was just looking at the U.S. results where Lyndon Donovan was the pretty clear winner with 45% of the vote, followed by Clint Dempsey at 28. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's pretty pretty hard to argue with that, but what are your thoughts? Well, I do. I argue with that one because uh, I thought Lyndon was a phenomenal player, probably had the most impact um, in the World Cup and globally. Um, I loved him as a player, clutch, everything. But... Um, I would I would rate him above Dempsey, even though I thought Dempsey was a gamer, great player. The two guys who, you know, and I don't know if this is a generational thing, but the two guys who just always who were men among boys when they were playing the national team, uh, I felt you know training, you know, seeing them train and everything was Tab Ramos and Claudia Reyna. I mean, they yeah. Just, so sorry, Ramos was listed as you know you could vote for him. I don't know what his yeah. result total was, and Tim Howard was the other one you could vote for. So. Well, keeper's a keeper, and that almost seems like a, a different category sometimes. Um, but, you know, if, if I would list it, I would say, you know, as far as impact, I'd, I'd say, God, you know, but Claudia and Tab were the most gifted, I think. But I'd go Claudia, uh, Landon, Tab, Clint. That, that would be my yeah. list. Um, but it was interesting. I have some of the other countries here. Um, Brazil's pretty predictable. Um, it's, uh, it's Pelé, obviously 79% with Ronaldo uh, second. A lot of people who played with and against Ronaldo said just at, at his best, he was just unbelievable. Um, yeah. We know that, but just how unbelievable. Um, to, to, I've heard players talk about him in glowing, glowing terms. Um, in England, this is an odd one because it's Sir Bobby Charlton with 56% uh, ahead of Bobby Moore. Two players from, you know, those glory days back in yeah. the 60s. That's what I was just referring to before with the English, you know? Isn't yeah, it's not it? Not a great look, I guess, for the English. I don't know. I can't comment. I don't, I don't remember either of those no, players. No skull. Yeah, I guess Giggsy is, is Welsh, you know. Uh, Keen yeah. is Irish. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess, uh, yeah, where's the great players? Um, Gaza? Get, you know, Gaza, Gaza was pretty good. He kind of flamed out pretty early, right? I mean, oh, Michael, at least. Michael Owen was a little bit like that. Alan Shearer had a pretty solid career start to oh, finish. Yeah. But I mean, the, but the English national team has been, you know, I don't want to say irrelevant, but really not put anything that interesting together recently. So, I, yeah. Oh, I love when you back up one of my theories about the, about the, the pompous nature of them. Um, yeah. Portugal, obviously, Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, but, you know, look, you forget Portugal, Eusebio. Um, mm. they, you know, he played in the U.S. for a while. Um and just to you know that's the time when you could just beat somebody up Pele and Eusebio just got their asses kicked you know time after time just with two-footed tackles and all the things that weren't called back then yeah. so uh, it's always tough to 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 basically look at different generations yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of Portugal I watched them play in the Nations League this week too and they're they're pretty fun to watch they're going to be tough at yeah. the Euro if it happens this summer I mean their front lines Cristiano Ronaldo 
Jao Felix at Atletico Madrid, who's having a really, really good season. And then uh, Diogo Jota, the, the Liverpool oh, player Liverpool. who's really coming on. I mean, that's a hell of a front three. They're going to yeah, be tough. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. I've always loved to, you know, look, my, a lot of my semi-pro semi stuff, my dog, my semi-pro stuff is all, uh, was all playing for the Portuguese. So France, obviously, Zinedine Zidane. Um, I, and, you know, and Terry Henry was in there too with 21%. But um, who's the French guy I'm forgetting? Um, he's uh, oh, got a little mental blank here. He's one of the, the officials. No, no, you know, not one of those teams because Zidane pretty much dominated that. Anybody on that team, he pretty much, you know, over. Oh, Platini. Oh, Platini, Platini. Okay, yeah. Michel Platini, who I guess maybe because of all his nefarious uh, business dealings is not on the list, but he was magic to watch. I remember, you know, watching him as a boy um, on those closed circuit games that I would see. Uh, yeah, I, it's hard to think of anyone more beloved in France than Zidane. I mean, you know, even now as a coach, I just feel like he's. Yeah, he's beyond, you know, any sort of status level at this point. Uh, Germany is uh, Franz Beckenbauer um, with 63%, um, followed by Gerd Mueller. Uh, little known fact, I got to I, – I played uh, played with Franz Beckenbauer when I was with scrimmage with the Cosmos, and I was just in heaven. <laughs> I would check my ass off back to the ball as hard as I could, you know, and open up wide right to your feet. Um, they said he was a, just a left-footed player, but he seemed like he played with both feet to me. Um, one dominant. So, uh, and he got to hang out with him a little bit too. So pretty amazing. All right. So then in uh, Italy, Maldini, I wanted to see what your thoughts were on that. It's, it's interesting to see a defender because he's followed by, by Baggio. Yeah. I, I mean, I think a defender makes sense for Italy, right? If it makes sense for any country. Um, I, caught only the end really of Maldini's career. That was when, you know, I was getting into Italian soccer and learning about all that stuff. Um, but I, I don't know if I've seen since him a more elegant defender. Um, you know, there've been some good ones in Italy and elsewhere too. And, you know, Van Dyke right now is certainly at, at an extremely high level, but I, I, the class that Maldini had is really right. Really tough. Van Dyke has it on a certain level. I think that's an interesting comparison it's not apples for apples there because it, they are different body types and the fluidity is different. But what I've always noticed about great defenders is the footwork is always right. The positioning is always right. Um, yeah. And Maldini just did it like a, like a, just a, like an artist. It, I mean, it, it never looked like he was sprinting or working hard at all. And, you know, every ball he, he won, he, you know, he'd play to a teammate right to their feet. I mean, it was just, he just never rushed or flustered at all, which just yeah. right in a, in a rush and flustered game. Yeah, yeah you know, absolutely. It stands out. It stands out. I mean, the calmness of Van Dyke stands out to me as well, where he just sort of, mm -hmm. you know, even when he hurt his knee there, he just kind of looked up at Pickford and was like, well, what are you doing? Man? Yeah. You know, but I do. Th I do think Baggio is probably the most talented Italian player ever. Uh, really, te technically gifted. Yeah, um, you know. Again, I only, that he skies that PK in the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, I only saw again. I was only really tuned into the end of his career, but um, I mean, the stuff he could do with the ball was just magic. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think Italy's had a player as as creative or technically skilled since then. Uh, the Netherlands, Johan Cruyff. Obviously, he got seventy one percent followed by uh, Aaron Robin. What do you think of that one? Yeah, I mean, I obviously didn't see Cruyff play. I mean... I didn't either, really. I Yeah, I mean, Robin's been... Is he, I think he's still playing in Holland. Um, but, I mean, yeah, he's been top of the game for a really long time. Hard to, hard to argue with. 
It's amazing how fast you uh, you go from the top level to not being able to do it anymore. It's amazing. It happens in like a like a like an eighteen month period. Like boom, you, you just yeah. cannot do it. You can't turn it on. Um, Spain, I thought was interesting. I want to hear your thoughts, uh, Ionesta. At forty-one percent, and Javi at twenty-four percent. What do you think of that? Uh, I, I mean, I love Iniesta. I absolutely yeah. think he deserves to be up there. I mean, talk about a guy who was, you know, basically everything I was describing about Maldini and Baggio. You know, just so calm and collected, never flustered, and just incredibly technically gifted. Um, I mean, I, I think Xavi was really good too. I think what I liked about Iniesta was just. I mean, you, you, I couldn't even imagine like the things that he saw and that he did, you know, it was just like so creative. You had to see a replay to figure out how he made the path, you know, uh, right, right. not, not that Xavi was predictable by any means, but he was just so inventive that it was, uh, yeah, just incredibly fun to watch. Hey, Ray, he was the engine of that team. You know? Yeah, he really was. And yeah, but Xavi, a fantastic player as well. I loved watching him. Uh, Mexico. Yeah. Uh, who do you think from Mexico? Uh, I, Rafa Marquez, maybe. Well, you know, he got a lot of votes, though. I, I do, did not like that guy. I just thought he was a dirty player and thought he was cheap. Didn't do well when he came to the MLS either. Um, yeah. But he's behind Hugo Sanchez. Uh, okay. Mar- Marquez was 33%. Uh, Nigeria. <laughs> I, oh. I don't know. You're going to need to help me out. JJ Okocha. Oh, too. yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, the canoe was second. So, and they even have Australia in here. You got to know Australia. Who's the Who's the big winner for Australia? Uh, Harry Kuehl, maybe. Or well, uh, wow. All right. Well, that's actually that was number two. It was okay. Tim Cahill who got seventy two percent of the votes, and oh, then interesting, and then Harry Kuehl. So, uh, not bad there. Very, very nice. So, yeah, uh, Harry Kuehl was uh, when he was at Leeds. You know, on that team that was in the Champions League early two thousands. He was he was really fun to watch. He was great. All right, so uh, what did you watch last week? Do you want to comment on any of that, or do you want to move on to what's coming up this week? Uh, I think we can move on. I mean, I, I checked out the Nations League. I mean, the Spain-Germany game stood out. Spain beat Germany 6 nothing. Again, you know, I'm, a, I'm sort of against reading into these too much just because it's such a crazy time and these teams are not all at full Germany's strength. Struggling. But, yeah, but 6-0 is pretty – you know, says something, I think. And, you know, the Germans? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, a lot of people asking if it's not time for Germany to move on from uh, Jurgi Lowe and – they well, may be at the end of a cycle. You know who's being talked about, obviously. Who would be the next one you think would, would move in there? To, uh, to the German role? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Ranjik, maybe? from. How about Jurgen Leipzig? Klopp? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that would be the natural progression for him. So I'd say in another year and, uh, you know, the World Cup is coming up. Who knows? We'll see what happens. But uh, that, yeah. that seems like that would be the logical decision, the logical choice from here on in. Yeah. Uh, I did have one commentary point uh, that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, okay. You know, again, I don't want to harp too much on, you know, the anti-British stuff, but, you know, watching these well, Nations League games, <laughs> um, you know, I, I just, I wonder, is it not okay to try and draw a foul in soccer anymore or, or just in general? I mean, I feel like it's looked down upon in a way by British and American commentators. And I'm not singling anybody out in particular, but you hear okay. very often when you're watching a game, you know, oh, he was looking for the contact um, as if it's this like sinister, cynical thing to which, you know, I would say, you know, using your body to shield the ball and force a defender into a foul is, you know, a huge part of the game. And 
you know, to bring it back to other sports and, you know, the American angle, I mean, can you imagine a basketball announcer criticizing a player for, you know, trying to draw a foul? I mean, yeah, you, 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 you do the fake pump and the guy jumps up yeah, and you jump I, into him. I, right? I, I mean, I, and in Italy, for example, I mean, it's, you're, you're commended for drawing a foul. I mean, it just, I don't right. know why it's become this like negative thing. And yeah, a lot of people's eyes. So explain yourself, because I think there's different types of mm-hmm. you know a foul there's that sort of what these call a professional foul where you know um you know he's breaking away in the midfield and you don't want him to get into the attacking third of the field and you bring him mm-hmm. down real quick but I'm, I'm talking about drawing a foul right so if you're near the box maybe you get yourself in a position where you know the defender is going to you know have to either run into the back of your leg or you know they're not going to be able to get the ball um not about fouling as much as drawing the foul and i just feel like that's frowned upon a little bit when to me it's sh- I don't know, it should be something that's seen as a positive. Yeah. I mean, I think part of that, what you're referring to, is sort of that old mentality, again, where you talk about, you know, Eusebio and Pele, how they used to just get beat up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maradona, how, how often he just get, you know, even Georgie Best, if you go back to, like, the, the Premier League or whatever it was back then, I mean, just the hacks that they would be taking was, mm-hmm. was unbelievable, and they weren't called back then. So, you know, they always say, oh, it was a man's game back then. Yeah, you know, take off your skirt, Kevin did it, you know which you can't even say in this society today because you, you know, would lose any show or whatever. But it, it was said back then. So we're just commenting on that. But I'm, I'm saying, you know, that, that macho element to the game. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the biggest problem happens in the penalty area because I, I'm a true believer in like the penalty area. Wow. It almost becomes like basketball defense. You can't, you can't mm-hmm. get stuck in at all because if you hit any, anybody, he's going down. And he should, even if he doesn't go down, a penalty should be called. Yeah. I mean, so to be clear, I'm not suggesting, you know, that people should be diving when there's no contact or anything. But I'm, no, they should get a red card and something or a yellow card for that. Yeah. But I'm, I'm merely saying that I, I think, you know, position, it's just an art, I think. And part of like dribbling is, you know, getting your body and protecting the ball in a way right. that if the guy's going to get, you know, stop you, he's going to take you down. I used to try and draw draw a yellow card. I mean, you know, when a player's coming at you hard and he's, you know, sort of retribution for whatever just happened, yeah. uh, you knew it. You steadied yourself. You know, you got your butt out and and you took the hit. You know, yeah. and hopefully he got the card. So, yeah. uh, I think you're right. I think there's a there's a subtlety within the within the game that that um, you know has to be sort of rewarded more. I think we do reward skill more now and mm-hmm. not brute, brute force. Um, so, so interesting, but I think you're right. I think people talk down on it. It's like, Oh, he went down for no reason. Yeah. All right. So what are you watching this weekend? Uh, so we got the MLS playoff play-in games coming up, uh, tomorrow. We're recording on a Thursday. So on Friday, we have new England, Montreal, uh, 6 30 PM on FS one and then Nashville inter Miami 9 PM on ESPN two. It's going to be cold for one of those games. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, then for the weekend games, uh, Atletico versus Barca on Saturday, 3 PM that's being sports. Liverpool Leicester is the big EPL game. That's NBC Sports, uh, Sunday at 2.15 p.m. And then Napoli-Milan, Sunday, 2.45 p.m. Very happy that this is getting, you know, the top billing on ESPN, not just ESPN+. Plus. So uh, I hope people Why is that, take a Sam? look at that. I, I don't know. I, usually the 2.45 slot is on ESPN+. Plus. They usually stick one of the morning games on, you know, ESPN or ESPN2. It's got to yeah. be just, a, you know, a, having to do with what's on. But uh, should be a good game. Two, two of the better teams and more fun teams to watch this year right. in, in City. 
Well, why don't we wrap it up? Um, but before we do, uh, you got a little quiz for me? Yeah, just a tiny little quiz. Um, I, thinking ahead to Euro 2020, which will technically be the name, even though it'll be held in 2021, we can finally look ahead to some meaningful national team games. Uh, I was checking out the odds, and I was a little bit surprised as to the favorites. So I was wondering if you could tell me who the top three favorites are to win the tournament this summer, if it is hopefully held. The Euros. Yep. You're not going to like one of them. I'll tell you that. England, Spain, Italy. So England are in there at oh, Belgium. Belgium's in there. Belgium's yeah. yeah. Belgium and France seem to be, and I've looked at a few different sites. Belgium and France seem to be the top two picks and England is uh, right behind mm-hmm. them. Uh, Belgium and France are about 5.5 to one. England's at six to one right now. So there you go. Well, we'll see, but you know, I don't English buy need- it. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. The English need Bob Bradley to come back. That's what they need to lead them to the World Cup. Like he almost took Egypt to the World Cup, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, all right. Well, good. That's uh, that's all the time we have today on Over the Ball. Everybody, we hope uh, Grail Halleck got his cable installed and, and his driver's license renewed. Uh, for Sam Griswold and Kevin Flynn, thanks for listening to OTB. Check us out. We'll talk to you next time. 